Well, this is our third Sunday in the book of Ruth, in a series that we've entitled The Story of a Loving Life. As we prepare to enter back into the story together, I want to refresh your memory of what's happened, just so you kind of get back into the story. Our story started as we walked with a family away from the people of God and the land of promise into enemy territory in the middle of a, a devastating famine. And then devastation followed them as all three of the men in the family, a father and two sons, die within the first few verses, leaving behind three widows to pick up the pieces. The story almost feels like it's ending before it really gets going, but God is just getting started. Because two of these widows, they're, they're foreigners, right? They're unrelated to the people of God by blood, but they're now related to the people of God by marriage. And they have a conversation on their way back when God has actually visited his people, given bread to his people, and they're on their way back there. And they have a conversation where one of these women, Orpah, ends up leaving her mother-in-law, Naomi, goes back to her people at the insistence of her mother-in-law, Naomi. But the other woman, Ruth, responds to the insistence of her mother-in-law with her own insistence of commitment. Unstoppable force, immovable object. Accepting her commitment, Naomi leads this devastated family that's now cut in half by tragedy back to the people of God and the land of promise looking for hope. Bitterness starts to creep into her heart, but God is at work through events that look like chance but are actually the, the beginnings of redemption under his sovereign hand. Through the work of someone that's not God's people, who becomes God's people as she cares for God's people, the second chapter of this story shows not God's people acting like God's people as Ruth communicates God's love by putting in work on behalf of Naomi. Ruth also comes face to face with God's love and the provision and protection of a man named Boaz, who's not just any man, but a worthy man. And a man who we find out by the end of chapter 2 is one of Ruth and Naomi's guardian redeemers. This is the moment where you, you hear, dun, dun, dun. You've never watched a novella? Uh, let me explain. Before we step into chapter 3, I, I, I want to step into it by asking you a particular question. What in the world is a guardian redeemer? The, the context work that I'm about to lay out is necessary for us to truly understand what is happening when we eavesdrop on a midnight conversation at the threshing floor and actually get what's happening in this moment. So, so what is a guardian redeemer? The role of the guardian redeemer is another example of God's justice built into God's people with God's commands. Last week, we talked about God doing this uh, through the commands of gleaning and how, people, how God provided for the poor, the widow, the foreigner in the fields of his people. But there's another system of justice that God has built into his people, and we find it actually in Leviticus 25. And it's a longer passage, so I'm not putting it up on the screen. You can look at it later. But, but God starts there by talking about caring for the land that he's about to give them, right? He's about to give them this land of promise, and here's how he wants them to operate, uh, how, how they're going to uh, give the land and the people that are working the land rest so that they're not always working their hands to the bone, how to make sure the people that are in this people of God are not taken advantage of. How to keep this people from becoming some kind of divided society with a, a one very tiny group of very wealthy people who all bought up the land when people were poor and one very large group of poor people working that land. In other words, God is building in a system in his people where an economy could grow and prosper but never does so at the expense of people. We read about Jesus in John 2.25 that he knew what was in each person 
And when we read the, the, the laws and the commands and the things that God is putting in his people, it's not because God just likes to give laws out. And so he's like, all right, that's uh, 613. That sounds like a good number. It's because God knows what's in each person. And in these laws, he's actually cultivating and creating a people, a holy people for himself, not just that's restraining the evil in them, but encouraging them to live into the life that he has for them. The chapter, Leviticus 25, goes from talking about the land to describing this economic system within his people that includes this role, guardian, redeemer. Uh, according to this passage, the guardian, redeemer, is uh, uh, one of the men in the family who's responsible for the well-being of the whole family. I mean, extended family. And he bears this responsibility not just in words, but in deed. And depending on how big a family could be, there might be multiple men who could fulfill this role. When I was trying to think of a way that, that might illustrate this for us in our modern day, the closest thing I could think of is the concept of godparents. But not just godparents, but godparents like in the Latino community, where like if you have a godparent, they're not just there to show up for the, the birthday parties and things like that. But if like something went horribly wrong, that godparent is stepping in and taking care of those kids. Guardian Redeemer is godparenting on the steroids of justice and family. Because godparents sometimes are family members, aunts and uncles, that you ask to, be, to fulfill that particular role, but sometimes they're not. They're, they're, they're family that you pick to take care of your family. But guardian redeemers are built into the family of God and have significant responsibilities to follow the justice of God and help that family follow the justice of God. And there are three things by which someone was considered a guardian redeemer. They have to be related, they have to be willing, and they have to be able. They have to be blood related to the family somehow. They have to have the desire to redeem, willing to actually do it, and then the resources to do it. They have to be able to redeem. If you met all of those criteria, you were one of the guardian redeemers in this family. You had a responsibility by living in that, in that way, by having certain resources and being someone that was willing to engage that, you have a responsibility to redeem, to buy back, to, to bring back, to restore, like we just sang, restore my soul. This is a reflective responsibility, meaning it was a way that the people of God reflected the redemption of God from, in particular, the exodus when he freed them from slavery. He talks about it in Leviticus 25. He's trying to say, I, I redeemed you. I bought you back. I gave you freedom. And then this role is going to exercise that in the daily, regular life of this community, reflecting redemption. And in this chapter, Leviticus 25, there's a bunch of specific situations that I won't lay out. But, but all of those situations, like all of God's law, they're not a, a, a restrictions. They're not limits on, okay, this is how far you need to fulfill this. They are starting points. Starting points within the family of God that, that, that prime the pump for a heart that reflects God's character among God's people and through God's people to the world. Side note, this is why Jesus gets into the Sermon on the Mount. This is why Jesus talks, and he keeps talking about the heart. Not just following the letter of the law, but what, what's the heart? If you're lusting in your heart, you've already broken the law. Because the point has always been about your heart and how you live out this. Not that you keep everything to the T. All right, that one was free. The heart of a guardian redeemer is to reflect the redemptive heart of God. Stepping into danger and difficulty for the sake of others. Not just out of the kindness of your heart, but because you have a, a genuine responsibility within this family. To this family. This is who Boaz is to Ruth and Naomi, at least in the legal sense. But in chapter 3, in the three scenes that we have in this chapter, we're going to see actually how all three of these characters live into the redemption of God. 
this, this redemption, this, this rescue as people that have been redeemed, as people that have been rescued, that this, this redemption that has to define the people of God. And so I want you to keep that question, what is a guardian redeemer in mind as we walk through the three scenes of this chapter? Because this context will affect all of the observations we're going to be picking out of this chapter. And by the end of the chapter, we'll see what this story at midnight on a threshing floor actually means for God's people and how it applies to us today. The first scene of our story in chapter 3 centers Naomi in the first six verses. A woman who is self-described actually in chapter 1 as bitter, but whose hope has been building since chapter 2. And then in these first six verses, we see Naomi live out that hope by living into the redemption of God through the plans that she's making. Plans to, look at verse 1, find a home for Ruth where she will be well provided for. I want you to notice something about this opening line. Think back to chapter 1. Do you remember what Naomi's prayer was before Ruth and Orpah? You can flip back there in your Bibles if you want to. This is Ruth chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. In her grief and on her way home, Naomi turns to both of her daughters-in-law and urges them to go home. Go back, each of you to your mother's home. Like, you don't have to stay with me. But then she prays a blessing over them. She says, may the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. That, that word kindness is a word that only partially captures what Naomi's trying to convey here. And, and if you've been here for a while, you know, I, I don't really like to do this much up here, uh, but I don't really know another way around it to explain this. You, before I do this, you can see what I'm about to say in any good study Bible. So if you just find a study Bible, it'll explain some of these things for you. I'm not pulling it out of magic or anything like that. But the word that's translated here as kindness is the Hebrew word for hesed. It's a word that is actually hard to translate because what it communicates is not just being kind to someone, not just because you did a good deed. It's, it's a word that wraps up uh, every single one of God's attributes in one reality and communicates just how much he loves us and is for us and wants our good. Some translations actually use the word loving kindness to kind of differentiate between just regular kindness or, or, or steadfast love, a love that continues no matter what to try and capture what this word is trying to communicate. This is what Naomi is praying in this moment, that the God of Israel might show these Moabite women, these historical enemies of God's people, the hesed that he promises to show his people, the hesed that they've actually shown to her and to her family. Naomi continues, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Not only may the God of Israel show you said, but may he give you rest, provision, security in the house of another husband. All right, come back to chapter 3 with me. What is Naomi's plan? She wants to find a home for Ruth, a home where she'll be provided for. The ESV actually translates the phrase here, says, should I not seek rest for you? Naomi prays that God would give Ruth rest, and now she plans to seek rest for Ruth? Hold on, is Naomi talking out of both sides of her mouth? Did she forget what she prayed? Is she just being impatient? Like, you know what, God, we've waited long enough. Uh, you help those who help themselves, right? So I'm going to step in. No. In this moment, Naomi is embodying the beginning of God's answer to her prayer for Ruth. In other words, God is answering Naomi's prayer for Ruth by making Naomi the answer to her prayer for Ruth. God is doing what he says he will do, defending the cause of the widow, and he is doing it through the faithfulness of a widow who's making plans of justice. 
plans to take care of Ruth, plans to honor and extend the legacy of their family. Naomi is making plans of redemption. Let me ask you something before we keep going into Naomi's plan. Have you ever considered that when you pray with or for someone, that maybe, just maybe, God might want to use you to answer that prayer? I've been sitting in this passage and I can't seem to get away with it because it doesn't just happen with Naomi. Later, the same thing happens with Boaz. The thing he prayed in chapter 2 is the thing that Ruth is asking him to do. Maybe, just maybe, God wants you to follow up your amen with a risky and curious question. Does God want to use me to answer this prayer? What could it look like if we were curious enough to embody God's answer to prayer for others. Naomi begins to be that answer when she lays out her plan. Look at verse 2. Now Boaz, with whose women you've worked, is a relative of ours. Okay, he's related. Tonight he's going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Remember your times in the field? He's not just related, he's able, he has the resources. Wash, put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. He is related. He has the resources, so he's able. Now we just have to find out if he's willing. Is he willing to continue the justice that he started in the fields and communicate the hesed of God that passes harvest time? That word hesed actually shows up in Ruth three different times. The first is in the prayer that we talked about in chapter 1, but the second is again in another time that Naomi's praying, and it's at the end of chapter 2. Ruth recounts Boaz's generosity and and, and her hard work to Naomi, and then Naomi discerns in everything that Ruth tells her, this, this sovereign hand of God in this report, and she praises God for showing hesed to the living and the dead, two struggling widows and a legacy that has been silenced by death. She praises God for showing hesed not just to the living and the dead, but by providing a guardian redeemer. And so Naomi now steps further into God's has said by making plans for redemption. What's Ruth going to do about that? Verse 5, I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. Why, why is that a big deal? Well, let me be clear. Naomi's plan is a plan of redemption, but it's not foolproof. It requires not just Ruth's participation, but Boaz's. And in the time of the judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, this plan can go all sorts of sideways. Ruth could get assaulted on the way in under the cover of darkness. Or or, or what if she shows up at the threshing floor and and there's someone else there? She could get assaulted by a stranger. Or or what if Boaz doesn't think this is actually a really good idea? Boaz is a man of standing, like the narrator says in Ruth 2.1, worthy and upright. We've experienced his integrity already, but this is still a dark time. Do you ever really know anybody? Someone's really, someone has said, character is what you do when no one's watching. Well, Boaz could easily have taken advantage of Ruth. What then? Not only that, but she's getting all dressed up and going to the threshing floor. Over and over again in the Bible, the threshing floor is actually not just a place for threshing, but a place where where, uh, certain people would offer their services. I'm changing my language in case there's little years in the room. This is a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. The plan moves towards redemption, but it's not without its pitfalls. This plan is dangerous, but Naomi is trying to look out for Ruth. This plan is risky, but but Ruth is trying to look out for Naomi. Verse 6, so Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. 
In this first scene, Naomi embodies God's redemption among God's people by making plans for redemption. And now, as we transition to our second scene, we follow Ruth on her way to the threshing floor because Naomi planned, but now Ruth pursues redemption. The darkness deepens as we transition from this quiet walk out of the city to figures moving around on the threshing floor as, as Ruth approaches. She, she holds her breath and watches for the moment that Naomi told her about, and, and the scene unfolds like this, verse 7, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly and covered his feet and lay down. So far, so good. As she settles in, she wonders what's going to happen. She makes contingency plans in case something goes sideways. She, she can hardly sleep, and then this story might float into her mind. The story that she heard forever growing up, a story that might have come out at a family dinner with her potential new family, these Israelite refugees, the story of her ancestors, of two daughters coercing their father with wine and sleeping with him, of the incestuous beginnings of the Moabite people. The warnings explode in her thoughts as she smells the wine and hears someone sleeping next to her, sounds that sound like this story. In a situation that feels like the story that she heard. But before she could interrogate the thought any further, Boaz starts to stir. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. In the darkness and in between sleeping and waking, Boaz rubs his eyes and tries to figure out what's happening. Has someone come to the threshing floor again that I, I've told over and over again, I do not want your services here at all. I want nothing to do with what you're offering. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Realization floods his mind, and now he's like, awake, awake? The next words that come out of her mouth make his heart do something like jumping jacks. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Ruth's heart pounds as she makes edits to Naomi's plan. Naomi told her to wait that Boaz would tell her what to do, but waiting is not Ruth's style. And she knows what he needs to do. She understands what Naomi has explained to her. She remembers what Boaz had prayed for her. And so wisely and directly, in the same kind of confident humility she expressed in the field, Ruth asks Boaz to be uh, God's wings and provide refuge. The corner of a garment was sometimes poetically described as wings. And so when she asks him to spread the corner of her, his garment, it is a concrete way of saying what Boaz prayed in chapter 2, verse 12, about the wings of God. When I say that Ruth pursued redemption here, I don't just mean that she followed Naomi's plan. I mean she went after the redemptive justice that God had built into his people. She was not passive in the process. If Naomi embodies God's redemption as she makes plans, Ruth embodies God's redemption as she actively pursues it. The redemption that God built into his people as a reflection of his character, as a reflection of their relationship. But this isn't just some legal transaction that Ruth is pursuing here. If we limit the story just to the justice of God as it plays, around, uh, plays out among God's people, we actually miss another beautiful layer of this story. You see, Ruth is not just boldly asking for justice, she's also proposing marriage. Spread the corner of your garment over me is not only echoes of Boaz's prayer in chapter 2, it is also a poetic way of describing marriage in the Bible. God's marriage to Israel in Ezekiel 16 is described in this exact way. In this dual pursuit, 
of redemption and relationship, Ruth is illustrating a reality that's all over the story of God's people. Redemption is always a means to an end. A means to the end of relationship. We are always bought back in order to be brought back into relationship. The story of Ruth reflects that in the pursuit not just of justice legally, but love relationally. A reality that will reverberate among God's people even through Jesus and his church. But right now, this second scene follows the redemptive process from Naomi who planned it to Ruth who pursued it. And now I want you to listen to Boaz's response as Boaz begins to perform redemption. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. Here again is that word, hesed. The first two times it's from Naomi, but now it comes from Boaz. Naomi prayed God's hesed over her daughters-in-law who showed hesed. Naomi praised God's hesed in the provision of a guardian redeemer. And now Boaz <laughs> praises God's hesed through Ruth. The most unlikely person in this story to be an example and embodiment of hesed. Because she's not from God's people, and yet she has embodied the hesed of God every step of the way. This, this interweaving of God's hesed with the, the actions of people is significant because guardian redeemers are, are these special examples of this. But all of God's people are to be daily examples of this. To be the embodiment of God's hesed in the world. And here we have the story of Ruth where everyone, everyone is being painted with hesed. Boaz continues, you've shown me this special kindness. You've not run after the young men, whether rich or poor. And now my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. This is the same phrase that's used to describe Boaz in chapter 2. A man of standing, a woman of noble character. In a time when the judges ruled and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, this dangerous plan is not risked because there are people who have integrity. There's nothing shady that's happening here. This is a match made in righteousness. In every other chapter, Ruth is described as the Moabite to emphasize where she comes from and how different this is. But not in this chapter, not one time. Ruth is, is who everybody already knows, this, this woman of noble character. She's not a reflection of the unrighteous beginnings of her people. She is a reflection of the righteous God she now serves. Did you know in the, uh, the ordering of Scripture in the, the, the Hebrew uh, Old Testament, their, their Bible, Ruth is actually not placed after the book of Judges. It's placed after the book of Hebrews, or the book of Proverbs. It follows Proverbs 31. Ruth being this example of what a Proverbs 31 woman looks like. Now, ordering the books in different ways, Judges makes sense as well because it's the time of the Judges rule. But I, I think there's something beautiful about a woman of noble character and a man of standing coming together in this moment and what the Lord is going to do through both of them. The plan is working. But, like any good novella, something is about to go wrong. Right? Something always goes wrong. Boaz explains, although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. 
Dun, dun, dun. Right? This is unbelievable. We get to the end of chapter 2. The harvest time has ended. Ruth and Naomi, they settle into this normal life. They're, they're not, she's not crossing paths with Boaz anymore. How is this going to work? And then Naomi hatches this plan, and then he, they're, they're together again, and he wants to be, they, she's proposing, and he, he wants to. What? Why? What is happening? You can almost hear Boaz's love come through as he talks about Ruth's greater kindness. But what's happening in this moment is that Boaz's love won't be overcome. But Boaz's love, the, the emotion, the experience, it's not going to overcome his righteousness. He maintains his integrity even as he begins to perform the redemption that Ruth pursued and Naomi planned and talking about, I'm going to go figure this out. The law is actually really clear. The, the, the right to redeem, the responsibility of rescue goes in concentric circles. And so the closer that you are, the more immediate the responsibility and so Boaz wants to keep things above board and maintain not only his integrity, but her integrity as well. In our culture, this scene at the threshing floor would play out very differently in an HBO original or a Netflix original. But here we have two examples of integrity in the face of a potentially compromising situation. A pursuit of justice and a preservation of righteousness for the sake of others. When temptation comes, this is not how we think. Right? There's, there are a hundred different ways to diminish and dismiss the danger and deadly effects of sin, not just to us, but to others. To pretend it's not so bad. To ignore who it affects. It's really easy not only to rationalize sin, but allow our righteousness to be overcome by our emotions. And in the church, we have held this line of righteousness too weakly. Believing that grace is a, a cover-up for sin. First Peter tells us that love covers over a multitude of sins. But that does not mean that grace covers up sin. It means that grace reaches into every sin, no matter how deep or how dark, and by forgiveness transforms temptations to sin into opportunities for holiness. These two people of noble character refuse to entertain temptation to rationalize their way into sin or their sin into justice. Instead, they pursue this difficult and righteous way to justice, a path that leads through redemption to relationship, not just for this family, but for the community where no one could say that they went the wrong way. Everyone could see the reflection of God's redemption, not just in the outcome, but in the process. Consider this for yourself this morning, for us as a community. How might we be tempted to rationalize our sin? To, to muffle the alarms that go off in our heads and our hearts and bank on cheap grace. Like to say things, oh, I've gone this far, I might as well keep going. Or God has to forgive me, right? That's how this works. He'll forgive me this one time and I'll, I'll change my life after that. In Romans, Paul says, let us not sin that grace, or that grace may abound. It says, should we continue to sin in order to make grace abound? And, and Paul actually fakes a phrase, says, by no means in English. It's, it's, it's like he's on the verge of cussing. Like, no way. What does it mean to be people of integrity, even in compromising situations, and to recognize that not only you need to maintain your holiness, but the way in which you act actually maintains the holiness of the community, the way people see, the way people engage. As Boaz begins to perform the redemption that Naomi planned and Ruth pursued, this is a very real problem. 
Look at the rest of the scene, verse 14. She lay at his feet till morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. Listen, Ruth, we know we maintained our righteousness, but looks and perception kill reputation. And so they wisely avoided the appearance of evil. And then Ruth heads home with redemption on the horizon. But before she leaves, Boaz stops her and says, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley, placed a bundle on her, and then, she, then he went back to town. Why did he do that? Well, we need to get to our final scene to know why he did that. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Let me translate. For, she probably has stayed up all night, has been pacing back and forth, checked the door 16 times. The, I mean, Ruth barely walks in the door when she says, okay, hey, hey, how did it go? We had this plan. What happened? And Ruth explains everything, but she adds something about that final moment with Boaz that we didn't know before. She says, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. In this moment, Naomi, the woman who wanted to be called Mara, bitter, at the end of chapter one, who was actually, if you read through the entire book, never called Mara because her circumstances don't define her identity, who says she, she left Bethlehem full and has come back empty in her bitterness and suffering is being reminded through the provision of God through Boaz that she's not actually empty, that he's in the process of filling her. She felt empty walking back into Bethlehem, but God has provided a daughter-in-law and a guardian redeemer to once again fill this woman and remind her that her name is not bitter but pleasant. That she will no longer be empty, redemption is coming. And the hope that started to blossom in Naomi at the end of chapter 2 is flowering as she speaks her final words in the book. Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Wait. Hope. Confident in the news that is coming, the news of redemption, of a man who will not stop until redemption is accomplished, who won't wait until tomorrow but will settle the matter today, who will accomplish the redemption of those who cannot redeem themselves. Naomi has planned it. Ruth has pursued it. And Boaz begins to perform it. We'll have to get to chapter 4 to actually see what that looks like. But the redemption of God exercised among the people of God in this story is something that that is going to reverberate throughout history. We, we, we hope it's going to work out like we think it should. But Boaz is pretty clear. He's not the only redeemer. He's not even the closest one. The novella fades to black as, as Boaz rushes into the city. And, and Ruth and Naomi wait in hope. Two widows who have done anything but wait in this story. Who've been pursuing justice and redemption. Both of them hope and trust that God's got this. Our question, what is a guardian redeemer, will take on the flesh and blood of a tense scene in this next chapter. But you and I don't have to wait with Ruth and Naomi to, to actually see this question take on flesh and blood. There's a greater guardian redeemer who took on flesh and blood in order to accomplish our redemption. This greater guardian redeemer is Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnated taking on a human body in order to redeem sinful humanity, to bring us back by buying us back, by buying our freedom with his blood, because he is our redeemer. The theologian B.B. Warfield draws out how precious this title, Redeemer, is for us. He explains it like this. He says, there's no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. 
It gives expression not merely to our sense that we've received salvation from him, but also to our appreciation of what it cost him to procure, to get this salvation for us. Whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded, posted, displayed, giant billboard before our eyes, and our hearts filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. You see, redemption is not just about being willing or able. Redemption is also about actually paying the cost to buy freedom, to redeem, to restore, to bring back. And that's what Jesus did. I'm going to end in this passage, Galatians 4, 4 through 7, to explain and, and, and take what happens in Ruth chapter 3 and explains how it applies and connects to the plan of salvation. Because in, in Galatians 4, we get this, the reality of what these three characters are embodying. Because in Galatians 4, we see that the Father is the one who plans redemption and salvation. The Son is the one who pursues and performs it. And then we get something new, something that's different among the people of God now. The Spirit is the one who perfects that redemption among us. Paul explains it like this, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. When Paul writes here that God sent his son and God sent the spirit of his son, he is talking about the plan of salvation within the Trinity. Much like Naomi's plan of redemption, God didn't just sit back and wait. He made plans, and he went after it. God acted. God planned, and God sent. And then in this text, we actually have the explicit naming of the Son and the Spirit, which makes it pretty clear that when Paul is talking about God sent, it is the Father that is doing the work. Much like Naomi planned and sent, but in a way that's greater than Naomi, God's plan would not be derailed by the dangers of sin. In fact, the dangers of sin would be part of God's plan. God's hesed would shoot through that sin and its devastation with love and righteousness. And where sin looked like it had won, God would claim victory over death and sin. God redeems his people. But how does he do that? Well, look at the text again. The son, born of a woman, born under the law. Not, under, not only does the father plan our redemption, but the son pursues it. Like Ruth, Jesus took the initiative and went, but in a way greater than Ruth, he didn't just go. He took on human flesh, and his righteousness became the means by which our unrighteousness was paid for. He took on the risk of a dangerous plan. John 1 explains that he came to his own, and they did not receive him, that they rejected him. And we know what happened when God's people rejected him. Torture and death. The plan was not without danger, but it was worth the risk. Those uh, justice, righteousness, relationship, all of it was worth the risk to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship because redemption is never the end. It is always the means to the end of relationship. Like Boaz, but in a way that's greater than Boaz, Jesus performed our redemption. He accomplished it. He made it happen, not just so that he, he out of the kindness of his heart or to just do his duty, but because he wanted us to be family again. But the plan of redemption pursued and performed actually goes past the story of Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi and talks about redemption not just accomplished but perfected, being perfected among us. And this is the work of the Spirit of God. Paul starts talking about adoption to sonship. And then he explains, because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. 
Our redemption was planned by the Father, pursued and performed by the Son, and is now being perfected in relationship by the Spirit. We have been made into children of God by the work of the Spirit, applying the work of Christ's redemption to us. By believing that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he was the ultimate man of standing, man of noble character, and then died a death he didn't deserve, the death that was our sentence as our punishment for our sins. And in that death, he paid for our redemption. He was not only willing, he was not only able, he actually went and did it. He paid the cost. He bought us back in order to bring us back to relationship. And now in relationship with him, it is the spirit of God that reminds us not only that we are not slaves, but that we are children of God, that we are not hopeless, but heirs, that we are not outside, but inside, that we are not destitute, poor, or defenseless, but that we have more than we need in Christ. We are rich in salvation, and he has provided for and defended us against evil, both the evil that's in the broken world and the evil that resides in our broken hearts. We have been redeemed. This has always been the identity of God's people. The reason God reminds his people again and again and again of an exodus, of, of freeing them from slavery in the Old Testament, because that redemption cannot just reverberate in their history. It needs to reverberate in their hearts if they're going to be the people of God in the world, a shining city on a hill in the Old Testament, because the point of Israel was to be a conduit of grace and mercy that people, all peoples might come to know God. But it's also why in the New Testament, God always, over and over again, talks about the gospel ad nauseum. Over, God just keeps talking about the gospel, reminding us not just of an exodus from physical slavery, but an exodus from spiritual slavery. That he has freed us and made us his. And it should reverberate not just in the pages of scripture, but in every desire and attitude of our hearts. In every action and reaction in our lives. We are the community of the redeemed. Or I'll say it another way. We are all guardian redeemers. We are all redeemed people who embody the redemption of God in Christ and express his redemption through our lives, through our love, in the way that we care for, plan for, pursue, and perform justice for others, in the way we express our, our relationship not just to God but to each other. Ever thought about the reality that when we are made children into God, uh, children of God, into children of God, that we are also made into siblings, that we're part of a family that has a responsibility to one another? In Christ, like the guardian redeemer of Leviticus 25, we are all related. Because of the Spirit's work in our hearts, we are all being shaped into people who are willing. Willing to express God's redemption to each other. And Ephesians 1 says that because of the riches of God, Christ's glorious inheritance, we are also all able. We're related to each other. Jesus is making us willing to step out and love other people. But then he also has equipped us with everything we need in order to do that. That we don't need to be afraid, we don't need to be worried. This isn't a zero-sum game where we're worried that we're not going to have enough. God will provide everything that we need. This is why passages like Romans 12 us tell us, 12.1 tell us, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is how we worship God, by reflecting the cost of redemption, the sacrifice of Christ in the way that we live. Later in the chapter, he fleshes this out. He talks about love. It's got to be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And then verse 10, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. The cost of redemption translates into the devotion of relationship, much like it did in the story of Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi. All pursuing redemption, all embodying the redemption of God in the way that they lived, 
the way that they lived with each other. Because like Romans 12, 21 commands us, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. They overcome the evil of the time of the judges. The evil of the bitterness of suffering and emptiness and despair with the good of God's redemption, with redemption that led to relationship. But redemption doesn't just stop at the beginning of relationship. It continues in relationship. It's why God set up systems of justice among his people, why God reminded his people of the exodus, why God points us to the gospel over and over again, because as believers, as familia in Christ, as people redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we are called not only to enjoy Christ's redemption in our lives, but to embody Christ's redemption in our lives. This morning, I want the full weight of the context of the guardian redeemer the story of Ruth 3 with all of its observations, the meaning of the bigger story of Jesus Christ, our guardian redeemer, to drive us to the point of application that as God's people, we embody the redemption of Christ in the lives of others. We are active in the lives of others. We advocate for them when they struggle to advocate for themselves. We care for others practically. We reflect the character of God knowing that the Spirit is at work in us to perfect us, to make us more like Jesus. Because someday will we be perfect in eternity. This morning, I want to invite you to respond to this call to embody God's redemption, Christ's redemption in your lives by, by taking time today as we, as we sing to consider how you might live this out in your life. What does it look like to plan, pursue, and perform the justice of God in redemption in your life? Who has God put in your path at work, in your neighborhood, right here even in this familia that he wants you to get to know better, to be in real relationship with them? Because you can't know how to love and care for others. You can't know how to serve them or even be in a position where others will love and serve you if you're not in real relationship with each other. It's in this relationship where you discover how you can not only pray, but maybe be the answer to someone's prayers. I want you to notice that Naomi and Ruth are both in really bad situations. It didn't stop them from pursuing redemption for others. You don't have to be whole in order to help. In Christ, you are made into familia. You have been redeemed. He has given us everything we need, not only for ourselves, but for others, to communicate and extend the redemption of God into relationship and the lives of others. And so as we pray to close our service, as we sing, I want to invite you to respond, to, to take a moment to be quiet, to reflect, to write. When we sing, feel free to stand, to stay seated, to sing, to pace in the back if that's what you need to do. Whatever you need to not just receive the word preached, but respond to the word preached. Let's pray. Our gracious Redeemer, this morning we pray out of our gratitude. Thank you for saving us, for buying us back, for freeing us from sin and making us into your children, making us into to family. You've redeemed us. And this morning, we pray that you would continue to shape us as a redeemed community out here in Streamwood. That you would continue to shape us with your gospel and help us to be conduits of your grace, your mercy, your justice, your restoration here in Streamwood. Help us to love one another and be devoted to one another in love. Help us to be a community where people look in and see your love and your justice. That we may embody the redemption of Christ, our ultimate guardian redeemer. That we may take on the family uh, uh, responsibility for one another as guardian redeemers following in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things confident in your spirit's work among us. Confident in the precious name of our redeemer, 
Jesus Christ. Amen.